This is an actor reading from an interview Gary Gygax gave in 2003. There is no question in my mind that had Don Kay lived, the whole course of later events at TSR would have been altered radically. Uh, Don was not only a very intelligent guy, a gamer, but he was also one who was not given to allowing the prospect of greater profits to cloud his judgment in regards to the long-term viability of the enterprise he co-founded and was so proud of. I'm Adam Turner. And I'm Paul Stormberg. You're listening to When We Were Wizards, an oral history of Dungeons and Dragons. Chapter 3, System Shock. This is Rob Kuntz. And what can I say? I mean, you're, you're, you're there and gone. You know, this is after TSR just started. And Don was certainly somebody who would test the waters out with Gary. And that's why Don, I think, would have made a, a, a huge impact upon things. Paul, where does Don's death leave Gary? It leaves him without one of his best friends and strongest allies. But even though they've got challenges ahead, they're still selling games. So they press on, which means Gary and Brian fill the void Don K leaves behind. We were, we were continuing with the continued momentum in every area. And Gary was uh, starting to become more specific about what he thought was going to be needed for, you know? So he was uh, exercising his leadership qualities, which he's always had. They're turning into a real game company. They've got another thousand copies of D&D printed up. They've got all the unsold inventory they bought from Don Lowry at Guidon. And then they've got plans to publish some new games too. Yes, and D&D is their top selling title. Which means Gary and Dave Arneson start seeing more and more in royalty payments, right? Uh, explain how that works. For that original edition of D&D, Gary and Dave had a handshake deal with TSR for 10% each of every sale. And this royalty agreement, that's something TSR offers other designers too. It's not just Dave and Gary. Yes, they're incentivizing designers to bring their games to TSR instead of, say, Avalon Hill or any other game company. But because D&D is TSR's top-selling game, it's really Gary and Dave making the most money from royalties. That's correct. They've sold out that first run, they've got a second edition printed, and they've got plans for a third printing, too. Now, to be clear, that's a royalty on only a few thousand games, so it's not life-changing money. But it's enough that Gary can finally answer that question whether he's going to have to cobble shoes for the rest of his life. And that's over. By June of 1975, he's out of the cobbling business and finally working for TSR full-time. But as well as it's selling, and as big as the company's catalog has gotten, the company itself is still struggling. Yeah, they've got a big issue to address with Don's widow, Donna Kay. Rob Kuntz. When Don died, uh, Donna didn't want the business anymore. They were, they were handling all the, uh, the, the mailing. And it wasn't until like several months later after he died that Gary discovered that she hadn't been mailing out anything. Well, the orders have been accumulating. And they moved all the stuff down in the, in the basement uh, back to, uh, to Gary's house. And uh, Brian Bloom and I uh, sat down there fulfilling orders. We'd go down to the post office every day. He would organize the, the orders, and I would ship them out. And Donna, she really didn't, I don't think, get along too well with Gary. Let's not forget, Don sold his life insurance policy to finance TSR 
for Gary. And now she's left with two kids to support without her husband's life insurance. I imagine there's some resentment there. Yes, this was her husband's thing, not hers. And by the spring of 1975, she just wants out. Twin Cities gamer Dave Wesley. The way I heard the story was basically Don Kay's widow demanded her half of the company you know, in cash on my hand. And uh, you can take all that junk that my husband wasted his money on and go sell it for scrap paper to give me my half. So she wants Gary and Brian to buy back Don's shares so she can wash her hands of the whole thing. The problem is, is they don't have enough money to pay her. TSR is barely squeaking by. But once they've taken the shipping back from Donna and, you know, they start fulfilling orders again, printing new games, why don't they have enough money? So that first printing of D&D brought in around $6,000. But Gary and Dave had this really generous royalty deal, 10% for each of them. Uh, that's a huge percentage off of the top. The problem was then the company could barely make ends meet. They were getting these insanely generous royalties out of the not very big cash flow. You have to take into account that Gary and Brian are gamers first and foremost. They're still learning how to run a business. But now they're realizing how badly those royalty deals are hurting the company. So that spring, Brian and Gary decide they've got to cut D&D royalties in half for the company to grow. David was told he was going to have to take half the royalties he'd been getting. And Gary said, well, I'm going to take half the royalties, so you should take half the royalties too, because Brian's told me that our royalties are insanely generous, which they certainly were. So just sign this to agree to it. Yeah, I have a copy of that agreement. Um, basically, it assigns the D&D game rules to TSR, and in exchange, quote, TSR hereby agrees to pay the authors a royalty of 10% of the cover price of the game rules on each and every copy sold, close quote. Gary's signature is dated April 7th, uh, 1975, and Dave's is dated April 14th, so a week later. Right. This is a written agreement that replaces that original handshake deal they had. So instead of getting 10% each, now Gary and Dave get 5% each. That means TSR makes an extra 10% per game. But the key part to this is that TSR now owns D&D, not Gary Gygax, not Dave Arneson. But to Gary, it's like he's signing D&D over to himself because he views TSR as his company and anything that belongs to TSR belongs to him too. That means Gary has now taken D&D away from Dave completely. That's a real Jedi mind trick he's pulled on Dave. I don't think Gary ever sees anything wrong with that, though, because in his mind, he's the author of the game anyway. So he recognizes Dave's contributions, but that is what the royalty is for. But the important piece here is TSR now owns D&D legally. And now sales of the game are doubling every quarter, and they don't want to lose that momentum. They've got two gaming conventions coming up in the summer. There's Gen Con and another one called Origins. They have to have copies of D&D printed to sell. And because they don't, gamers are running off Xerox copies of the game, and TSR gets none of that money. In fact, there are stories from Gen Con and Origins that Gary had a group of loyalists or, or bully boys who would find people with these illegal copies and tear them up right in front of them. And that scarcity of the game, that's not the only issue gamers have with D&D either. They're complaining about how much the game costs, too. Yeah, in 1975, the full retail price and the separate cost of the dice runs about $12.50, which is about $65 today. And that's a lot for a teenager or college-age gamer to afford. 
So between the royalty obligations to the game creators, the overhead, the company overhead, and this need to print games to keep up with demand, they're actually not even close to being able to buy Odonna's shares. No, and now we're into the summer of 1975, and she's getting impatient. Yeah, so they decide to reorganize the company so they can raise more capital and buy out Donna. Gary and Brian officially dissolve the original Tactical Studies Rules partnership they had with Don and put all their assets into an entirely new corporation called TSR Hobbies Incorporated. Mike Carr. Tactical Studies Rules and TSR was a true startup. I mean, you know, one of the classic tenets of American economics is that anybody can start a company, anybody in theory can become a success. I think one of the goals was not just to be a fantasy game company, but to be a game company, a hobby company. And that's why, uh, you know, the, the name TSR Hobbies indicates more the tactical studies rules that already there was a vision to expand the horizons of the company and what they were doing. But to fulfill that vision, they're going to need to find an outside investor. Again, Dave Wesley. I was... Uh contact my artist because this is the time frame where the TSR dealt with a big problem when Don Kay died. And uh, the partnership was dissolving and the financial situation is really treacherous. And so they said, we'll look and find people who'd like to invest. And I said to myself, well, I'm in the Army. I don't have a wife and family. I'm just a happy bachelor guy and the Army feeds me and it gives me a place to sleep. And uh, I can afford it. So I got my sent back letter and I said, I'll send you $5,000. Now, 5,000 was a pretty significant chunk of change back then. Um, And I thought, well, they'll be pretty happy with me, right? I got no answer. As my father would say, he was a steer with long horns. So who do they turn to? Well, the only person close to them with any money was Melvin Bloom, Brian's father. This is game designer Jim Ward. He starts working at TSR a little later, but here's Jim talking about Brian and Melvin. So they had some dull... They always hid it. They didn't want anybody to know that they had some money. And, uh, and Brian was working in his dad's factory and, and loved D&D so much that he talked his dad into investing some cash into the whole thing. Now, Melvin is not a gamer, but he's a businessman who sees an opportunity. And on September 1st, 1975, he buys 100 shares. And three weeks later, he buys another 100 shares. That's a $20,000 investment he's making. And with that money, Gary and Brian buy out Donna Kay's shares the very next day. Here's what Mary says about Don and Donna. And if he hadn't died, you know, he would have been one of the big partners. And his wife sold out for $4,000. And I told her not to do it, to stay in there. So she's officially out. And at this point, how much of this company do the Blooms own? In September 1975, Brian and Melvin have 590 shares. And Gary only has 150. Yeah, okay, four times as many shares. Do you think that bothered Gary, though, having fewer shares than the Blooms? Uh, Oh, yeah. This company is Gary's life, and he wants to control its destiny. He uses his royalty income to try and buy up shares and and close that gap with Brian and Melvin, but he, he just can't catch up. But even though he has fewer shares, he's still leading this company as president and its primary creative force. You know... It occurs to me all the origins of every battle that follows in this story are tied to the three things we've just discussed. The royalties, the percentage of shares in the company, and the ownership of D&D. Yeah, the seeds of every conflict are planted right here. But for now, 
They have this infusion of cash. They've settled out with Donna. They've paid off their debt to the printer and moved all their assets into this new corporate entity. They've survived a really significant crisis and they're ready to grow. And the vision now is to build up a big inventory so they've always got games in stock. And with that investment from Melvin Bloom, they order 5,000 copies of D&D, more copies of Don't Give Up the Ship, and even a second printing of their first product, Cavaliers and Roundheads. So they're fully stocked up on inventory. That's the first step. But they're also looking around for new games that they can acquire too. And how do they do that? A couple of different ways. The first is by offering these royalties, which we talked about already. And the second is by offering stock in lieu of royalties or a combination of both. So with McGarry, for instance, he decides to take the stock offer because he thinks a royalty is going to make his game dungeon too expensive for the market. I had sold the uh, rights uh, for stock. I own seven and a half percent of of TSR for a while. Um, part of that, that was to lower the price. Uh, uh, Dungeon uh, first came out was $12.50, which was still pretty expensive. I wanted it under $10. Um, with about dropping my royalty, it went down to $10.50. <laughs> Not where I wanted it, but it was definitely better than the $12.50 it was. They're also thinking about how to sell and market all of these games, too. That means growing the mail order business, uh, establishing a storefront, and publishing a new fanzine periodical called The Strategic Review. Yeah, but to do all of this, of course, uh, means they need a real office. They need a headquarters. Yeah, and as luck would have it, there's a house for sale just a few blocks away from Gary's. Rob Koontz. Williams and Marshall, yeah. The old Kruver house. I used to be, I uh, used to, that was family friends of ours. They had sold it and I'm not, and TSR picked it up. It's known as the old gray house. Uh, they're going to put a hobby shop on the first floor and the executive offices on the second floor. My brother rebuilt that place. He rewired it, recarpeted it, did all the upstairs offices, uh, built, put in the counter space did all the wiring downstairs in the, in the basement and uh, all the fixtures and everything. And he was very busy. He didn't see him. He was over at the house all the time. Rob's brother, Terry Kuntz. He's demanding, always demanding to me when the, the building's going to be finished. The work never got done. And they had to bring in a uh, construction firm to finish it up. But Terry's also the janitor, groundskeeper, handyman, carpenter. He wears a lot of hats. And what about Rob? Yeah, Rob's in charge of shipping. And then for that fanzine periodical, they hire a 26-year-old Navy veteran named Tim Kask from Carbondale, Illinois, and make him the editor-in-chief. And we'll talk more about Tim later, but who's next? Gary knows he needs to convince a few members of the Twin Cities group to relocate to Lake Geneva. And of course, the main hire is Dave Arneson. He's a great idea man. But beyond that, Dave has relationships with the entire Twin Cities group and all the games they've been designing. So Gary thinks if he can get Dave into this company, then he can bring all of those games into the company too. I think he enjoyed the notion of, of getting work for his friends from the Twin Cities. And I think he perhaps enjoyed the uh, prestige of being the... Uh, the recruiter, as it were. But Deus never lived outside of St. Paul, Minneapolis. So if he has to move to Lake Geneva to work for TSR, he wants a contract 
with the terms of his employment in writing. And how did Gary and Brian respond? It's really Brian who heads up that negotiation, at least in writing, and it got pretty contentious. How so? Well, Brian would send Arneson letters specifying terms, and Dave would write back demanding things like a higher salary, more stock, profit sharing, more authority, all of that. Until finally, Brian gets so exasperated, he writes a letter to Dave and says, Dave, listen, if we give you any more, you are going to be making more money than Gary and I, the people who founded the company. And so Dave finally acquiesces and signs. And then Arneson pulls up stakes in Minneapolis and moves to Lake Geneva. Yes, but before he even gets there, his relationship with Brian is pretty strained. There's a taint there. Once they get Dave on board, who's the next hire from the Twin Cities? Next is David McGarry. And just earlier that summer, Gary made good on his promise to publish McGarry's Dungeon. And I went there to be the treasurer because I, I, I seem to have some sort of business acumen. Gary was somewhat excited about the fact that somebody's actually going to show up and, and, and know how the books are. Not that I had done very much you know, dealing with banks and things like that, but, but at least I understood what the, the practice was supposed to be. McGarry had a job in the copy center of the Harvard Law School, where he took it upon himself to read everything that came his way on how to run and grow a successful business. So he's a good fit and moves to Lake Geneva, too. The next guy they bring in is Mike Carr. When Gary makes him the offer, he's working as a manager at the Ground Round restaurant. So Gary uh, offered me the job to come to Lake Geneva, and, and uh, he said, now that you've had some management training in the restaurant business, which whether that's transferable to gaming, I, I, I wouldn't even say it. And Gary said, if you come to work for us uh, at TSR, we'll pay you $110 a week. So almost a 50% pay cut, but the opportunity to do something that you love and not work six days a week, that's appealing too. So I jumped at the chance. And then there's Dave Sutherland. Now, he wasn't part of the Twin Cities gaming group, but he was from that area. And some of the guys knew him from college at the University of Minnesota and recommended him as, uh, as an illustrator. So when we think of all that iconic cover art and, and imagery that defines D&D, we're all probably thinking of something Dave Sutherland created. That's right. And when they hired him, he was working for the Minnetonka Moccasin Company as a shoe salesman. Hmm. And he takes a, a two cent per hour pay cut because it's a chance to do the kind of art he loves. And he is their first staff artist. Because we're starting to start to move towards departments at that point. Like I was in charge of shipping. Gary was in counting. We had artists in upstairs who was uh, supposedly bringing in new new talent and everything from the Twin Cities, which he did. He brought in Mike Carr's games and, and of course, McGarry's stuff had already been brought in. It was a wonderful setting and kind of hit the ground running and a lot of projects. Things were, Dungeons and Dragons were starting to really gain momentum and the board games were starting to be a, a part of what they were doing there. Everyone was... Uh, Starting to sense that, you know, this is growing because you're out of the basement now, you're out of a basement concern, we're through, we're through the playtest, we've invested everything our, all our time, we've done all, all the, the groundwork, we're now out of the basement, we're into the house, a reconverted house, right, where, where is the next step. As things take off in 1976, they decide they need a full-fledged glossy magazine to help market their games. So they take their original newsletter, the Strategic Review, and turn it into the dragon. 
We uh, had the magazines coming up, changing from strategic review, and had Tim Kask in charge of that, where Gary was first the uh, magazine editor, but then he brought that in and he turned the publisher, and Tim was the editor. So this is the team. From Minnesota, it's Arneson, McGarry, Carr, Sutherland. And from Lake Geneva, it's Gary, Brian, Rob and Terry, and then Tim Kask from Illinois. There are other people, but for the purposes of the story, it's these nine people that formed the core of TSR in 1975 and 1976. And all of them are crammed together inside this house they've converted into an office. It's so small that Dave Arneson, the research director, their main hire, either shares the offices of Sutherland and Cask or works offsite at his apartment. It's professional, but it's homespun too. Uh, it's like a family moving into a house together. And it's an optimistic moment. For a minute, it really is Camelot. For a minute. <laughs> That's right. Dave McGarry. We were busy all with a sort of a dream. Let's, let's, you know, let's take these ideas and let's run with them and, um, and make the million dollars and, and retire. <laughs> I think that the, the best time that we had there as a group where everything was cooking was the Gen Con at the Horticultural Hall. You know, everything... It was a really successful convention. Everybody was working together. We were getting the production out. You know, we, we, we released products. We had Fritz Leiber there. You know, it was an amazingly fun time. It looked like the future was going to go, you know, perfectly. And then it's, things started going sour there. What he's getting at there is all that early optimism starts fading when they're all faced with the day-to-day -day realities of operating the business. This just isn't the dream anymore. And pretty soon, most of these people develop some deep resentments because of it. There came a time relatively early on when a bunch of orders came in. And it was all hands-on to get the shipments out. And so everybody sort of dropped their, their regular roles and went in, in, in package boxes, you know, writing labels and just getting the stuff out the door. And uh, and so when I when I arrived there, we find that Arneson is sort of been, and he's and he's now down in shipping and he's a really good shipper. I mean, you know, he he can close out, out you know, the uh, hundred boxes uh, in an afternoon that, and that's what was needed to keep the company going. And I think that ultimately that sort of put the division between them was because now all of a sudden he's downstairs and Gary is upstairs. We got into this sort of upstairs, downstairs uh, thing. And as the company got um, more orders, it became really more important that somebody run that. And if you all of a sudden stop, you're dead. And so Arneson is doing the nitty gritty work, but he's still expected to bring in this intellectual capital, and he's also expected to design games. It's just too much for him. Yeah, he uprooted his life to pursue this dream of designing games, and now he's packing boxes in the shipping department. He's exhausted at the end of the day. Sitting at a typewriter all of a sudden becomes more of a burden. People have made a comment, well, Arneson was down there for six months and he hardly put anything out. Well, Yes, and there's reasons why, and, the, and probably the biggest reason is because he's sort of doing the thing that the business needs to be doing to stay alive. TSR would not have been where they, get, where they got to if Arneson hadn't been the shipper and I hadn't been the, in the, uh, the bookkeeper. Then Arneson's also feuding with Tim Kask, mostly over the manuscripts he's turned in. 
Yeah. In the last episode, we heard Rob and Mary Jo's reaction to Arneson's initial pages of Blackmore he sent Gary. So this is similar. Yep. But now Tim's got this job editing Arneson's draft of the Blackmore supplement. And it seems everyone agrees, even Arneson, the draft was a disaster. And that means a lot of work for Tim. And Briefly, let's describe what a supplement is uh, for anyone who doesn't know. So as D&D takes off, they come up with this idea of publishing a collection of supplemental rules and ideas for the core game. Gary and Rob wrote one together called Greyhawk. That's the first expansion. Arneson's Blackmore supplement, that's the second. Future TSR employee, Jim Ward. He brought three manuscripts down and he handed them over to the editors and they found them unintelligible. Bad typing, bad grammar, bad everything. So Tim's fuming because he's the one who has to fix everything Arneson turns in. First, it was the Blackmore supplement, but now it's Dave's other two manuscripts, Ship of the Line and Naval Orders of Battle. And organizing all of Dave's disparate ideas, it's a heavy lift. And there's some uh, resentment, of course, right? Explain that. Well, remember, Tim had come in a year before everyone else and pretty much had Gary's ear on everything. And so Tim and Gary had a very good creative rapport, and Tim liked that relationship. And it's natural when you've got a good dynamic and another person comes in from the outside, it's going to cause friction. So he's very loyal to Gary. Definitely. And so any kind of threat or slight that comes Gary's way, Tim is right out front protecting him. He's a big personality. He was a very aggressive guy. And and again, the scuttlebutt was that if somebody needed threatening, uh, Tim would do it. But Dave has a snarky streak and he throws it right back at Tim in his own way. Like there's the story of the donuts. So Tim is very proud of their new flagship magazine, The Dragon. And apparently Dave would go through every publication of the magazine and make these little circles or donuts around all of the typos and errors that he found. Uh So Tim would hear little comments and jokes about donuts, but he didn't know what Arneson was talking about. And after about the fourth issue, Arneson shows up one day with an actual box of donuts and drops it on Tim's desk and says something like, here's a box of donuts for you. Tim doesn't get it until later when Dave Sutherland informs him of the underlying meaning of Arneson's joke. And Tim was incensed. There's a post online where Tim says, Arneson had the unmitigated effrontery to present me with a box of cheap donuts. Yeah, okay, so they do not get along. This is not a big place. This is a little house. And any small conflict is, is just magnified in that kind of environment. But there's more acrimony, too. Let's talk about Rob and Terry. I mean, they're not exactly happy either, especially with Gary and Brian. Remember, half of these people just moved across the country to work at TSR. So if you're going to pinch pennies to manage the financial challenges of the company, then you're more inclined to impose that burden on those who are closest to you. And for Gary and Brian, that's Rob and Terry. They take it in the shorts. Here's Terry. And at that time, I was getting fed up with the clothes I was wearing in the hobby shop. I was, uh, wasn't eating very well, and I was having troubles making payments on my car and my rent. I needed some extra money. And Gary came down to me and said, the only thing we have is a nickel. I couldn't feed myself on a nickel raise. So he's underpaid. 
they're actually not paying him at all. In fact, Terry's getting paid through a, a federal program for small businesses. And so the federal government is paying Terry $2.35 an hour, not TSR. And then there's Rob. Gary and Brian have him in shipping, but what he really wants to do is write and design. Yeah, Rob had already co-written Greyhawk with Gary by this time. Uh, It's out there. It's been published. He also published his first short story, The Quest for the Vermilion Volume. He's got his own game ideas too, but now he's packing boxes all day. Terry too. Uh, You know, Terry has written a short story that Gary uses to create the iconic Beholder monster. Uh, He's also got a Robin Hood role-playing game that he's been working on. And Gary promises him that they'll get to design down the road, but right now he needs Rob in shipping and he needs Terry in the hobby shop. Here's Dave McGarry. But the nitty-gritty of running a business all of a sudden just takes over and you can't ignore it because, well, now your livelihood can Watch your paycheck. Paycheck is dependent on that cash flow coming in. Cash flow only can happen if you open the letters, take the you know the checks out, and, and, and you put the things in the boxes, and you put labels on them, and you you know you, and the UPS guy shows up, and that's and that's that's the nature of the business. You know, and, and that's sort of how it devolved. We talked about how McGarry used to read everything that came his way while he was working at the copy center at Harvard. And some of these papers and studies would really make an impression on him. And so he would mail them off to Gary. One of them was about the the stages that that companies go through in terms of asset management and how do you grow a company. And Gary, you know, was trying to, you know, grow his company. And I was all worried about, you know, the different stages that have to go on there. And I said, you know, we have to really be careful. You know, you need to be careful about, the, you know, how this works because it could get away from you. Because otherwise, you know, if you want to have um, the, your creation and then have com- control, you, you've got to learn the different ways of managing the different stages that a company uh, goes through. I've read the paper he's talking about, and it basically says that a company is always going to encounter a crisis in each of five stages of development. And so company leadership needs to know what those are so they can deal with them as they come up and keep growing. It's like McGarry's an oracle in a Greek tragedy. Even before he moves to Lake Geneva, he's warning Gary about what's going to go wrong. He's saying, this is going to happen whether you want it to or not. And just like the hero in the Greek tragedy, Gary doesn't want to hear it. And he wrote back, we'll never let that happen. Never. But that paper really sticks with McGarry. And, you know, it actually gives him a lot of hope. Yeah, because every company that tackles all those crises ends up stronger for it. McGarry thinks TSR can be one of those companies. So one night when Gary and Mary Jo have him over for dinner, McGarry brings it up again. I had the, the five stages in, in mind, you know, and I sort of said I was looking forward to the day when we were so big that people would forget, you know, who Gary Gygax was. I was thinking of IBM, I was thinking of AT&T, you know, these very large companies that after a while you don't know who was the beginnings of those things. Well, they were insulted when it was nothing but the highest praise in my mind was that we would become so fabulously wealthy and fabulously large you know, as a company that we would sort of drift you know, away from that point on, which I never understood until much, much later that, I, that that's how they interpreted that statement. 
And ultimately, that led to the falling out that Gary and I had. Obviously, we only have McGarry's side of the story, but it's only a month or two later that McGarry and Gary have a complete falling out. Right. It's already strained, and then it just breaks after McGarry starts questioning the way Gary and Brian are handling his dungeon board game. The Australian distributor was complaining that we were shipping it the wrong way and we needed to do something about it, and Gary said, take care of this. Well, I thought that he was asking me to do something illegal, <laughs> which it turns out not, wasn't. But I was just, you know, that was my impression at the time. And since we were you know, sort of getting distant, I, so I just wrote him a letter of resignation. I said, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't do this. And he resigns. Okay, so by the fall of 1976, everyone in the company has some kind of real grievance here, right? Um, Tim Cask and Dave Arneson are needling each other and competing for Gary's attention. Arneson wants to design, but he's stuck in shipping. Rob wants to design, but he's stuck in shipping. Terry has completely renovated the old gray house, but he's working for Peanuts now. And of course, you got Brian and Gary disappointed that Arneson isn't producing at the level they expected given the fact that they gave him more than they were willing to in their contractual negotiations. And so all this tension between these nine people is about to boil over. It was a pressure cooker at this point, and there was something wrong going on. Now, we've already talked about how some of these designers would get shares in the company in exchange for the rights to their games. That's right. And they would also offer shares as employment incentives, too. Here's my car. And he also said, you know, we'll give you the option to buy some stock in the company. And if this enterprise succeeds, that'll be worth something, which may offset this pitiful salary that we're offering you. Anyone holding even one share is entitled to attend the annual shareholder meeting. That's correct. Every November, TSR holds an annual shareholder meeting, and the 1976 meeting is right around the corner. And the shareholders aren't just Brian, Gary, and Melvin Bloom anymore. Now it's Arneson, Mike Carr, Dave McGarry, Tim Kask, Dave Sutherland, and even Rob and Terry Koontz. Yeah, and the shareholders, they want to have a say in the direction of the company. Especially Dave McGarry. And even though he quit the company, he's still one of the biggest shareholders and he wants to see some changes. From my point of view, it was like we needed to expand our board. Uh, I wanted to get an accountant on the board. I wanted to get a lawyer on the board. All the, the, the ideas of what, how do you make a business grow? And in the weeks and days after he resigns, McGarry coordinates with Arneson and Carr to make a stand at this upcoming shareholder meeting. And together, they're going to vote as a block to force Gary and Brian to expand the board. I, I think I somewhat led the charge on, on this one that I, because, you know, I wanted the to, to company to grow. And you're not going to get anywhere if you don't have the, the professional types on your boards. Right, because at this point, Brian and Gary are the only two members of the board, and whatever they say goes. So McGarry's idea is to add two more directors to the board. As McGarry sees it, the most qualified candidate to fill a third board position is Melvin Bloom because he has the most money in the company. And he has more business experience than Brian or Gary, so why not bring him on the board? But Melvin isn't actually at this meeting himself, is he? No, even though he has those 200 shares, he never once attends any of these shareholder meetings. He always assigns his proxy votes to Brian. Which means the only way McGarry can expand the board is to convince Brian to vote with them. They think that if they suggest Melvin, they'll have Brian on their side. And then they'd have the voting shares they'd need. 
But does Gary know about this plan before he walks into the meeting? I would be surprised if he didn't have an inkling of it, because there were a lot of rumors circulating at this time. Uh, Dave McGarry recalled that they had even been talking about moving the whole company to Minnesota. You mean the Minnesota group's been talking about this? Yeah, because they're only there because that's where Gary is. Mm -hmm. Which happens because Gary doesn't drive. He's brought everyone to him. Also, Minneapolis is a bigger city. It's a center of commerce. In a business sense, moving the company is the kind of decision a board might want to make. But these ideas are a threat to Gary's control. And that means this meeting is going to be a showdown. Okay, so it's Wednesday, November 3rd, 1976, according to the minutes. They've all spent the day working, filling orders, editing the periodical, etc. And at exactly 3.15 p.m., these nine shareholders gather on the second floor of the old gray house. Here's how Dave McGarry describes the scene. We were in Gary's office. They had set up some chairs for us outsiders, folding chairs in front of his desk. Brian was uh, sitting behind Gary, and the, the lighting wasn't so great. By outsiders, he's talking about himself because, again, he's already quit, and now he's back as a shareholder. But everyone else, they're all there, including Rob and Terry. Yeah, Rob has just bought a single share of stock just two days earlier. Which means this is Rob's first ever shareholder meeting, and all this is brand new to him. He naively assumes the tense discussion between the other shareholders is just talk, and this must be what happens at shareholder meetings. He just doesn't appreciate the gravity of it. My brother and I did not know that, uh, that there was a, uh, a rift developing between... Arneson and, and Gary, when they uh, attempted to bring upon another director under the board. But I think Gary was tense at the time during the stockholders meeting because of what was coming from the other side of the room. And that's when they put it to a vote. Well, afterwards, their notion was voted down, even by Brian. Brian voted against it. Gary says, well, Brian, how do you vote? And Brian says, I'm with you. Whatever plan Dave McGarry and Artisan had to win over Brian backfires. Brian's proving his loyalty to Gary. That drives the wedge in right there. That plants him. I am the only guy who keeps you in power against this den of iniquitous traitors. Yeah, and he's showing he has just as much power in this company as Gary does. His vote matters. It's a declaration that Brian and Gary are a team. Gary and Brian thought that what we were trying to do was to take over the company. And that's why there's this huge fight, you know, uh, and um, the, and that's, I think, that ultimately was what uh, caused the Gary and Arneson to, uh, to break. And that's that. The shareholder meeting ends and Dave McGarry leaves the room. Because now it's time for the employee meeting. But all the tension is still hanging in the air. And Gary's really brooding. Things are about to get ugly. Rob Kuntz. And so it came up as what that might help with the company, because Terry knows what's going on in the hobby shop and what might be needed there to affect changes that he needs. And what I I thought might be needed for shipping in order to, uh, to get some things done more appropriately. So I voiced one of my concerns about the uh, about a change that could be needed. And it was, I believe it was a minor thing. 
And when I said that, it almost looked like I was siding with, with them. And that's when Gary lashes out. And he leapt out of his seat where he was behind his desk, leaned across it in my direction, looked me right in the eye and screamed bloody murder in my face. He flew into a purple rage, which stunned the entire occupants in the room into silence. And then he sat back down. And quite honestly, I was so stunned, I can't remember what he screamed at me. And after Gary explodes at him, Dave McGarry told me Rob runs down the stairs, right past him, tears streaming from his eyes, and runs out of the house. I mean, Gary has really cut him deep. Now, being 21 years old and not experienced in the world like a lot of these elders around me were, uh, I didn't know what that was. I couldn't put my finger on it. I couldn't explain it. But deep inside, uh, the psychic siren was going off. There's something wrong here. Gary is so outraged by this attempted takeover that he views everything as a threat, even if it's an innocent suggestion from Rob. Gary thinks that this local kid that he's taken in almost as his own son has just betrayed him. And it comes out as Gary saying, et tu, Brute. Gary isn't just exerting his authority over the company through board decisions or through voting shares, though. He's, he's really controlling the company and the people who work for him through his emotional connection to each of them. I mean, he's really willing to manipulate the people he loves to get his way. Rob likes to say it's because Gary is a Leo. He wants to rule. And if he can't rule, he'll destroy everything around him. Mm. It reminds me of what Elisa said about the way Gary behaved with the family. Gary rules with an iron fist, and if you don't like it, too bad. But this time, it's not the Gygax family he's ruling over. It's the TSR family. To Gary, it's like his children have betrayed him. For for the first time, all of these conflicts have just exploded into the open, and it's pretty clear all is not well in Camelot. When you have the president and a former comrade and and gamer and father figure standing up and screaming bloody murder, where he's not even explaining to you what the hell's going on. And, and there's, a, there's a lot of loss going on at this point for understanding. And at that point, I had the feeling there was something very wrong. When We Were Wizards is a production of Traction Media. It's hosted by Adam Turner and Paul Stormberg and written by Adam Turner. The editing was done by Andrew Pascal with original music and themes composed by Todd Haberman. Our producers are Paul Stormberg, Adam Turner, Andrew Pascal, and James Spratley. Andrew Florio is an associate producer. Steve Montano played the voice of Gary Gygax. Janice Arroyo designed our cover art. Special thanks to Chris Hafley, Jim Gavin, Ruth and Andreas Gabor, David Dotson, Ryan Cangliosi, Kevin Maurice, Michael Cox, Travis Grawman, Annie Janes, and Michael Bogner. Thanks for listening.